Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Greg Heller, who's the author of a slightly different type of book uh, than I normally review and talk about, which is uh, more of a biography, a biography of a, a figure, a prominent architect, planner, but also a policy entrepreneur. The uh, book is called Ed Bacon, Planning Politics and the Building of Modern Philadelphia. It's published by Penn Press this year. I hope that you really enjoy this interview. Greg, how are you doing? Good. Good to be with you, Heath. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. A really interesting, a different book for me to read in this context. Um, but as, as I hope we'll talk about, uh, it's, it's a really a political book in, in many ways, as, as was Ed Bacon's life. But before we get to it, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit. Um, uh, what your background is, where you are now. You're not a traditional academic, you know, though you've written a, a very academic book. Um, so tell us about yourself. Uh, sure. I went to college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I created sort of a multifaceted major that, uh, urban studies major that involved both political science and uh, history, art history. So I came out with kind of a diverse uh, educational background and uh, started doing work um, right after college, um, doing uh, community development and affordable housing. Um, and uh, I'll explain in a second how I got there, but I did that for a little while, and then I worked for the uh, Metropolitan Planning Organization for Philadelphia called the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission for a few years, uh, doing a lot of policy and planning work, um, and then I went from there to head up a community development corporation um, where uh, we did uh, economic development, uh, physical development projects, and uh, at the beginning of this year, I started my own company doing um, uh, urban uh, uh, real estate investment projects and economic development work. Um, so that's the quick overview. But the way I really got into all of this was through Ed Bacon, the subject of the book, who I met after my junior year of college. Um, I took off a, a uh, well, after my junior year of college, I was home in Philadelphia interning at the Philadelphia City Planning Commission and uh, working on a thesis that was going to be about planning in Philadelphia, and everybody suggested I needed to touch base with Ed Bacon, who at the time was in his 90s. So I wrote him a letter. He invited me to come over uh, for an interview. We spent an afternoon together. Uh, He took me out to lunch and asked me to take off a year of school and help him write his memoir. Uh, And I did that, and it was a remarkable year. Uh, I recorded hundreds of hours of, of taped interviews with Ed Bacon, met all kinds of important people in the field. Uh, got to see his whole uh, archive that he was keeping in his house, and it was really very transformative for me um, about how I looked at uh, urban spaces and urban policy, and it really changed my whole trajectory. And so it was really through that that after I, I graduated um, college, I uh, started going and trying to work in that in that field of, uh, of urban development. Yeah, it's, just, it's such an interesting way to come to this luminary, even if uh, maybe not a luminary uh, to everyone, as we'll talk about, he, he really carved out some new ground in this field of, of planning, but not just uh, in planning. And, and you know, he, he takes on, and, and your experience must have been, um, you know, a little like interviewing one of these, these ad men from the, the Mad Men TV show, um, looking back on that same kind of era. When was Ed Bacon... Making his name. When, what is the what is the time period um, that that really establishes him as such an important figure in in urban planning? 
Well, Ed Bacon was city planning director of Philadelphia from 1949 through 1970. Uh, but as I try and explain in the book, there are several periods where he was very influential, but in different ways. Uh, he uh, cut his teeth working in uh, urban planning and affordable housing in Flint, Michigan in the 1930s during the WPA, uh, the Works Progress Administration under Roosevelt's New Deal. Um, and then the main uh, uh, portion of his career as planning director of Philadelphia was under uh, urban renewal, another era of, uh, of big federal spending on cities. Um, but then he had a very active um, several decades after he retired from the city planning commission uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, working for a uh, private real estate firm um, and doing a number of projects uh, as, a, as an independent um, uh, practitioner um, during, obviously, a period of uh, much less public money available for cities and, and general urban decline in Philadelphia and across America. And so one of the big things I try and touch in the book is looking at Ed Bacon in these different periods um, and how he did what he did and what resources were available and uh, kind of what the, the changing scene was around urban planning and development in Philadelphia, but also nationally. And I, and I want to talk about some of the um, Bacon as a, as a political figure. But before we get to that, um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what I know least about, which is sort of the architectural dimension of, of Bacon's career. Um, you know, let's just sort of start there. And, and so when we visit Philadelphia today, which parts of Philadelphia are part of Bacon's legacy? Are there iconic architectural contributions that we would still see today that stand out that, that are that are his uh, the result of, of his work particularly? Well, it's a very good question, and it's a much more complicated question than than one would think. One of the themes I actually have in my book is that while Ed Bacon is associated with the physical planning of Philadelphia during this 21-year period. He actually designed almost nothing. And many of the ideas that he became associated with were other people's ideas. And the architect uh, who ended up actually designing buildings that are in urban spaces that he's associated with were not actually his design uh, and were things that he had very little influence on. And so I really try to disconnect Bacon from the physical architecture uh, and spatial design, uh, which is what he's often associated with, and try and connect him more with the uh, political maneuvering behind the scenes, which I think was really his contribution and which he receives much less, um, uh, well, it's seen as not as strongly connected to what he was doing. Uh, you know, so he, he's largely seen as, as someone who had an influence on the physical realm, and I'm trying to reframe the lens that we look at him as looking at him as more of someone who who worked in the political policy realm is, is the short answer. Yeah, and, and indicative of that, I wonder if maybe if you could sort of retell uh, one or two of the anecdotes of the interactions between Bacon and Louis Kahn, who is another notable from that era, who and and there's I, I forgot exactly what the encounter was, um, but but Khan's deep obsessive focus on design elements 
that's juxtaposed with with Bacon's um, focus, which is which is different in, in some ways. Is there a, sort of a, an encounter that that illustrates uh, Bacon's approach, architectural approach, um, that is less design focused and more planning focused? Yeah, absolutely. The, the fact, well, just stepping back a bit. So during this period, there were people who were the figurehead of each city's ur- urban renewal city rebuilding program. In New York, it was very much Robert Moses. Um, in uh, Boston, it was Ed Logue. Um, in a in a place like Baltimore, um, slightly later, it was um, someone like Jim Rouse, a real estate developer. And so one of the themes that I hit on is that Bacon perhaps uniquely, was a city planning director who became recognized as the figurehead of this city-building period of urban renewal. And I look at the question of why in other cities uh, it was a a development figure, and in Philadelphia it was a planner. Um, And, you know, while looking at that question, it gets to one of the complexities of Bacon, is what exactly what he was and what role he played. And so he really did... um, uh, cross between these two worlds of architecture and design and policy, politics, and real estate, uh, which few people, I think, bridged um, as as much as Bacon did. Um, and he was trained as an architect. Um, but, uh, you know, when you get to something like Ed Bacon's relationship to Lou Kahn, it's very complicated because Lou Kahn was an architect, and Lou Kahn felt that uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but something like, if your ideas are right, the politicians and and others will come to you and will build your ideas. And Ed Bacon was the complete opposite. He believed that it was the job of people who uh, design um, uh, both, uh, you know, planning and buildings and policy to have to sell those ideas to the right stakeholders and build a constituency um uh, and get those ideas into the pipeline of implementation in the ways that it needs to move them forward. And this is very different from the way that Khan and probably many architects uh, thought about how ideas are presented and then built, you know, where an architect has a client um, who pays the architect and then builds it. So um, Ed Bacon, as far as I could tell, always thought that Lou Kahn was a very brilliant architect, but I don't think he thought much of his, his political savvy. Um, and so the uh, key example that I use in the book of this was uh, around Penn Center, which is this cluster of buildings, uh, office buildings, right across from Philadelphia's City Hall that in the early 50s was still occupied by the Pennsylvania Railroad's massive uh, viaduct that ran right through the western part of Center City and uh, really degraded the value of the the real estate in this whole area because you had this huge railroad viaduct. And the Pennsylvania Railroad for decades had been talking about tearing down this viaduct and freeing up this land. And when the time finally came, the railroad's uh, philosophy of what to do with it was to sell this land off piecemeal uh, to a variety of different developers because they didn't believe there was a lot of value to this real estate. And Ed Bacon, uh, as well as others, including Lou Kahn, felt that this real estate could become very valuable and could become a new civic center for Philadelphia if the Pennsylvania Railroad would develop it properly. And so Bacon and Lou Kahn sat on this committee of the Philadelphia American Institute of Architects, and they developed a model 
for what this property could look like. And it was this very grand uh, vision uh, stretching for, I think it was something like 11 blocks with these uh, towers with a pedestrian promenade underneath them. And essentially what happened was that Ed Bacon ended up going rogue and working with a different architect um, whose name was Vincent Quang. And so I look at why Ed Bacon decided not to work with Lou Kahn and the AIA committee, but to kind of go off and do his own thing. And it seems pretty clear when you look at, at, at Vincent Kling's qualifications. He was a corporate architect who worked well with business clients. The Pennsylvania Railroad already was his client. Um, and he lived in the same building as the uh, vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, who was the heir apparent to become president. Uh, and sat next to him at the dinner table every night. And so Ed Bacon identified this was the type of person who could get him access to the Pennsylvania Railroad's upper management and board of directors and successfully be able to sell this idea to the right stakeholders. And indeed, they were successful getting the year of the Pennsylvania Railroad in large part thanks to Vincent Kling's connections and savvy as an architect who could work well with corporate clients. So the the point of this whole thing is that at the end of the day, Vincent Kling's design looked very similar to Lou Kahn's design. It was one block rather than 11 blocks. But at the end of the day, it wasn't about design. It was about uh, marketing ideas. It was about, um, it was about uh, networking. Uh, and it was about uh, coalition building uh, in order to sell an idea and get it into the pipeline. Um, and in this case, it was a private corporation that owned the land. And so Ed Bacon's feeling was that he needed to reach um, you know, this corporate entity to sell the idea. So anyway, the short of it is that Ed Bacon really did span these worlds between design and politics, but at the end of the day, he was really a, a political entity and policy implementer, and at times it, it did put him at odds with architects like Lou Kahn in a, in a pretty significant way. Yeah, and in the book you describe him, and I, I know you've described him in other interviews, as a policy entrepreneur using John Kingdon's terminology, which would be uh, familiar to, to political scientists. When you met with with Bacon, when you when you interviewed him, and you described that this was these were long, long interviews. Did he describe himself in these terms? How how much is this idea uh, part? Was this part of his own vision? Uh, was he was he um, conscious of this strategy? Was this something that that sort of just came naturally to him? Or is this a, uh, a function of, of, of something else? Um, I wonder maybe just talk about a little bit about um, interviewing him and, and trying to, uh, how much of this uh, was, was his own self-conception? Sure. Uh, I think Ed Bacon very well knew what he was doing, and he was a very good salesman of, and marketer of ideas. And one of the things that he sold and marketed aggressively was a uh, picture of himself, the way that he wanted to be perceived and the way he wanted his legacy to be remembered. Um, and that didn't always mesh with what he was actually doing. So throughout his career, he very much sold himself as a physical planner, and he would give these presentations talking about the, the urban design of Rome and Paris and London and how Philadelphia um, you know, is connected to the history of, of urban design and planning, very focused on design, architecture, planning, aesthetics. And he really didn't talk about his 
political and policy posturing that he was doing behind the scenes. And I think that was very intentional. I think he did not want a lot of attention to be paid to Ed Bacon, the policy entrepreneur, because I think he wanted to be able to quietly be able to uh, work his deals in the background and then build public excitement and get the media excited around the physical design, the architecture, the planning. Um, and to a large degree, it really worked. He, he sold a vision uh, or a, um, you know, a picture of himself very differently from the Ed Bacon who was actually being effective uh, in the, uh, the uh, meeting rooms and halls of City Hall. Um, and when I interviewed him, he sold himself this same way. He talked about the power of the idea. And so in interview after interview, and you can find tons of articles about him, um, he sells himself as someone who created design concepts, and these design concepts were built based on the power of the idea that people were inspired by these designs that they saw. And he really doesn't talk about the policy entrepreneurship. So um, I felt like I really had to see through this. Uh, and, and initially, I bought it, too, especially when I was working with him. Um, and in fact, I wrote a, uh, a thesis at Wesleyan after I finished my year working with him called uh, The Power of an Idea. Um, so I, I was totally sold on... on uh, on this uh, idea that it wasn't necessarily the political move maneuvering, but the uh, the uh, design idea itself that was so influential. But um, after I started working on the uh, the biography project, which by the way took me six years to research and write, I, I got a very different picture of Bacon, especially reading his um, confidential weekly report to the mayors, which are all at the University of Pennsylvania's Architectural Archives. And when you delve into it and you look at his correspondence and his weekly reports and the meetings he was having, and you see what he was really doing. It's very different than the way he sold himself and probably the way he wanted his, uh, his legacy to be, um, to be portrayed. And in, in talking about this, what, what comes out is, is Bacon's ideology um, and, and what some of his beliefs were. You've touched on some of them, but throughout the book you talk about his orientation towards public input and his, his uh, uh, interest in um, uh, getting the public behind a project. Because you could talk a little bit about, about his ideology more specifically and, and whether his ideology is somehow different than planners of his generation. Um, is that a piece of, of Bacon that, that makes him distinctive from the others who are working in New York and in Baltimore and in Boston and, and in other, his, his contemporaries? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to go back a little bit to understand where Bacon was coming from. Um, he um, he was doing his early work. Uh, well, first of all, after college, he traveled the world and ended up working in Shanghai and in China as an architect of all places because uh, there actually was a, a pretty big um, uh, building boom in Shanghai at the time. Um, and after he came back from Shanghai, he started working for an architect in Philadelphia who was the architect of record for this uh, workers' housing project that was actually designed by um, by a uh, an unregistered uh, immigrant architect named Oscar Stonarov. And Stonarov got Bacon into this group of very influential um, 
kind of young uh, progressives who were focusing on affordable housing and good community design as a way to uplift the poor uh, and uh, and urban workers. And this included big names like Catherine Bauer and Lewis Mumford. And so Bacon got brought into this circle that was focused at the time on uh, design and architecture uh, as a uh, social force that could influence people's lives and uh, and lift them out of uh, out of poverty and have them be in a more healthy, productive type of uh, environment. And this whole philosophy was hugely influential on Bacon, and he applied to the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan uh, with an application that said he wanted to focus on architecture and the uh, social impacts of, of it. And when he got to uh, Cranbrook, um, Eliel Saarinen, who was uh, then the president uh, sent him on a on a um, to carry out a uh, study in Flint, Michigan, um, which uh, at the time was uh, you know a fairly successful um, uh, uh, auto manufacturing hub, um, but that was seeing some pretty significant issues of urban growth and and uh, and poverty and. Uh, housing conditions, and so Bacon started working there and kind of extended what he was supposed to be doing, which was largely around traffic, to a larger comprehensive plan for Flint that focused on affordable housing and rebuilding urban center, and he actually created a coalition of groups that were specifically focusing on affordable housing and trying to bring in new resources uh, from Washington for uh, subsidized uh, affordable housing in Flint. And got himself into a um, uh, a uh, pretty heated clash with the business and political establishment in Flint. And at the end of the day, Bacon was was run out of town on a rail, and Flint turned down the federal money. But this was where he came from, and he came back to Philadelphia and got a job working for a uh, nonprofit affordable housing advocacy group. So Ed Bacon very came very much came from this idea of architecture and design as social planning, focusing on affordable housing and uh, planning for the poor and uh, and urban workers. Um, and this was the context he brought uh, into his job um, when he eventually became city planning director in 1949. Uh, if you look at what the Philadelphia City Planning Commission did in the early years of Bacon's tenure, it was very much focused on the same kind of philosophy of trying to empower neighborhoods, affordable housing, um, redeveloping uh, low-income neighborhoods. Uh, and in many ways, it directly conflicted with how the federal government wanted urban renewal dollars to be spent. Uh, the formula for urban renewal was essentially that the federal money uh, subsidizes the cost of clearing slums, wholesale bulldozing them, and then rebuilding uh, in partnership with a private redeveloper. And Ed Bacon was very much opposed to wholesale bulldozing. Um, he believed that there should be some demolition, but it needed to be very selective, uh, that you needed to restore historic buildings, especially community anchors, and that there needed to be a large degree of community involvement in the planning process. And there are a number of articles during this period um, in the early 50s talking about how different Philadelphia's approach was from every other city in the country and how it was a more sympathetic and community-based approach. 
Um, and so in many ways, it actually was similar to the approach that many planners favor today, which is very much um, focused on involving communities um, and uh, in uh, reinvesting in existing neighborhoods. Um, and the reason that the Philadelphia approach uh, ended uh, didn't really have to do with Bacon as so much as it did with the federal government in 1954 adopting a new federal housing um, uh, bill that reallocated how the money was to be spent, focusing it more towards commercial development, urban centers, um, uh, universities. Uh, and so Philadelphia shifted along with the federal priorities. Uh, so what I would say is that a lot of Bacon's work that he's associated with was uh, was downtown projects um, and uh, kind of these large-scale planning visions, but at least uh, early in his career, he brought a very strong focus on community development, and he came as sort of this uh, Roosevelt liberal with this strong focus on affordable housing and planning for the poor. So I think in that way, it really did set him apart from a lot of these big city redevelopment czars, uh, who I think came in with a different uh, overall focus. This is just such an interesting book on, on so many levels. Um, uh, one that I, you know, I, I can uh, uh, strongly recommend. Um, is there another book in you? Are you working on uh, another? I know that you know your work has has uh, taken a turn in some ways, but but do you see another book coming up from you, either about Bacon or about another figure in this in this era? Well, as you said initially, I'm, I'm not an academic, and I'm not a um, primarily a writer. Um, you know, I'm a uh, I'm an economic development consultant, and I do urban real estate work. And so, this book was uh, was fairly challenging to research and write. And um, I'm not sure I would take on another uh, uh, academic book anytime soon. But there are a number of, of figures and um, and uh, historical events that I bring up in my book that I really do hope other people will write about. Um, I donated all of my research materials to the University of Pennsylvania's Architectural Archives, and I hope that others will go and uh, go through that material and focus on some of these other people and events, um, people like Oscar Stonerov. Um, uh, well, just I could I could spend an hour giving that list, but, you know, they're... they're whole bunch of people and events who I think really should be written about, and I hope that my book inspires uh, a new set of literature on Philadelphia's 1950s, 60s planning, on these other figures, and even on different parts of Bacon's career that I didn't have enough time to focus on um, because of the, the constraints of the book. Um, my book really focused on his role as city planning director in the 50s and 60s, but after he retired from the City Planning Commission, he started this whole campaign called the Post-Petroleum City, where he went around the world giving lectures and writing articles about an urban future with no private automobiles, where peak oil has occurred, we have no more petroleum fuels, and our cities return to infrastructure that's totally bicycle, mass transportation, and very concentrated downtowns where people can walk, uh, which was pretty progressive for the time. Um, and... Uh, you know, so that's one period. You could write a whole book about, you know, Bacon's campaign to rid the world of private automobiles, for example. Um, uh, 
uh, you know, or his early work in Flint. You could write a whole book on that. So I do think there are a lot of other works that could come out of this, and I hope they do, but I'm not going to be writing them. Uh, to answer your question, though, for myself, I would like to at some point write another book about um, uh, strategies for uh, urban economic development um, based on some of the, uh, the work that I'm doing now and projects that I'm involved in. Well, I hope that you come back if that book comes out, and also if these other books that are generated out of this legacy that Bacon has left and that you've left in these archives, um, I, it, it absolutely sounds like there's uh, some great research to come on this. Until then, uh, Greg's book, Ed Bacon, Planning Politics and the Building of Modern Philadelphia, is published by University of Pennsylvania Press this year. Um, I hope people go out and read it, both political scientists and also others interested in, uh, in planning and architecture. Greg, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I appreciate it.